It is not every day that our church has a Bible scholar come to speak to us. As a matter of fact, I can't remember the last day we did that. But it did happen here last week. Right in this room on Saturday afternoon, a gentleman with a long title, the Right Reverend John Shelby Spong, former Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Newark, New Jersey, delivered a wonderful address on both the Bible and other subjects. His lecture was attended by 277 people in this room, which is quite a few people. And I know many of you were here, and I also know some of you were not here and maybe wanted to be. So it seems to me that what this gentleman said to us is significant enough that we need at least to review it in part. And I would like to see if I could bring out for both those attended, who attended and who didn't some of the most powerful features of what he has to say. I will try to do justice to what he said. Jack Spawn, as he likes to be called, instead of the long title, is a religious liberal. In that sense, we belong to the same religious family, actually, if you look at it broadly as the family of religious liberals. As a matter of fact, he is actually a champion of religious liberalism. During his 21 years as an Episcopal bishop, he championed the cause of LGBT rights within the Episcopal church and was a crucial figure in the eventual decision of that group to give full rights, to restore full rights to LGBT people, including ordination and everything else. He took a lot of heat during that time. It was a controversial time for him, and he said he's had 17 death threats. So I don't know if that's a large number, but it, it seems like too many. Even at this very time, Bishop Spong is supporting a United Church of Canada minister who is now being called to uh, account by her denomination in Canada because she has announced that she is an atheist. She's an atheist but not leaving the church. And so she's being called to account by her denomination and he is been a public supporter of her in, in that struggle, which is going on right now, by the way. So he's known as a champion of human rights, but he's also known as a biblical scholar, someone who has studied the Bible extensively and has written 25 books, the content of which is largely about the Bible. So go figure. Um, he is very critical of the Bible, but he also says he loves it. So how about that? Figure that out. I want to talk to you a little bit about what he has done as a student and teacher of biblical literature. And by the way, I decided for today, we really ought to have a discussion. So I'm going to go in the RE meeting room after the service and at noon, so you can go and have some goodies. 
because I don't want to miss the goodies. And then those who wish to come and join me and we'll have a little discussion about some of these things. I'm going to give you a taste of his biblical analysis. It's only going to be a taste. But out of his biblical studies and his theological studies has arisen a perspective that is, I think, extraordinarily relevant for Unitarian Universalists. And indeed, it's relevant for everyone. As a young seminary student and priest, Spong studied the Bible in real detail. He's really, uh, he said he has typically studied one book of the Bible per year. So a year on one of the books. Um, the book that we were selling uh, the other day, uh, this one called Biblical Literalism, a Gentile Heresy, is largely about the book of Matthew. That's the one he's been working on. As he has done all the study of biblical literature, he has come to several conclusions. All right. The first conclusion is that the Bible is not a work of history. The Bible is not a work of history. In other words, it's not a history book. It's not something to go to to find out exactly what happened in a certain year at a certain place or what somebody said or any. It's just not a history book. It's some other kind of book. Okay? So Spong believes that the stories that many of us learned in Sunday school, all the wonderful Bible stories, are not to be taken as history. They're myths, they're legends, they're really good stories. They're like the stories that Amy tells the kids. Every, we hear those stories every week. Nobody thinks those stories are factual. But we like them because they tell us something about our reality. That's what they do. They're not meant to be factual. And so Spong can explain, and he does explain in many of his books, why a certain story developed a certain way. Why are there these characters in the story? Why did this character do this? And why did this character, what is the reason for this? Was it just arbitrary or somebody was just sitting around one night with a guitar and started strumming and they said Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Spong will say that there's a reason for every story uh, to be a certain way. For example, I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, in the Christmas story, we have the character of Joseph, who is Mary's husband, and in some sense the father of Jesus, although we know Jesus' uh, mother was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, so that's another issue, but I'm not going to focus on that issue right this moment. Why is there a character named Joseph, and why is his name Joseph? Because that character does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. There's an oblique reference somewhere to the father of Jesus. But basically, that Joseph character only appears in the book of Matthew, not anywhere else. So why is that character there, and why is his name Joseph, and why does he disappear? Well, there's all kinds, I mean, this is a complex thing. He may well be there because Jesus needed a father, because maybe there were rumors going around that that Mary did not have a husband. So that's a whole angle that you can pursue. But he wants to pursue the question of why did they choose the name Joseph? Well, it turns out, here's his argument. Here's his argument. 
The stories about Jesus developed in the Jewish synagogue. There wasn't any other place for them to develop. The early followers of Jesus were Jewish people. And for a long time, there was nothing written about Jesus. Nothing, nothing at all for about 30 years. And then you get Paul's letters. And then after that, you get the epistles. For a long time, there's nothing written at all. Zip. But the stories are being told and the stories develop. And he says, well, where could those stories have developed? They developed in the synagogue. Because that's where, that's where they met. They were Jews and they went to synagogue. And as Jesus became popular, they told stories about Jesus in the synagogue. He says, where else could they have been told? That's where they were told. So what that means is that the stories were told in such a way that they made sense to Jewish people. Does that make sense, you know? If you were going to give a lecture uh, to the Lithuanian society, you would frame it in a way that it would make sense to, to your audience. So all these stories are told in such a way that they would make sense to Jews. So, for example, the name Joseph was probably chosen, according to Spong, because Joseph was one of the leaders of the tribes, the 12 tribes, and by choosing the name Joseph, it was a way of inviting that tribe, the descendants of that tribe who identified with that tradition, to participate in that story, okay? It's because this was a group that, that they wanted to bring in. So by calling him Joseph, it honors that tribe. It's sort of like when a president is nominated, please don't start thinking about presidents. When a president is nominated, the president picks a vice presidential candidate to bring in a certain group of people, right? Isn't that the way it works? Well, he says that's where the name Joseph came from, was an effort to bring in a certain group of people who were descendants of the tribe of Joseph. So he argues with a tremendous degree of scholarship that all of the stories about Jesus are told this way. They're told as synagogue stories that would make sense to a Jewish audience and the Jews would get the references. They would understand that quickly. So the story of Joseph is an example of that kind of decision. The people who wrote the Jesus stories were all Jewish. They were all Jewish. It was a Jewish phenomenon. And Spong argues that you've got to look at it in the context of Judaism. We just had a holiday called Easter in this part of the world. Easter is the celebration of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that Friday night, there According to the tradition, there was something called uh, the Last Supper. And the Last Supper has all kinds of uh, symbolism associated with that. So and you know what is amazing is that the Last Supper occurs on Passover. Okay, So that the Last Supper then is portrayed, and I learned this when I was a kid, as a Passover Seder. Have you guys heard that? Why would that be the way the story is told? Because the Passover is the most important holiday in the Jewish calendar. 
So if you wanted to say that something is extraordinarily important and extraordinarily connected with the Jewish religion, there wouldn't be any better place to put that than on Passover. That would be the strongest possible way to frame that story, to say, this is significant, this is, this is really important, because Passover in Judaism is the beginning of a new religion, of a new people. And so by framing that on Passover, which Spong says is not historically true, one uh, can emphasize the importance of that, and that Jewish people who were the listeners would understand immediately what was being said. It would be an immediate apprehension of, of what's being said. So this is how Spong sees the New Testament being constructed. And he says that Jewish listeners of those times would immediately see these connections and they would not take these stories literally. They would not view them as historical facts. They would understand that they're stories, just like the stories that Amy tells on Sunday morning. We don't listen to those stories and say, well, let's go and check and see if, uh, you know, the little red hen really baked her bread. You know, where is the record of that? There's no record of that. It's a story. And lest you think that he's just off his rocker, uh, he isn't, but I'll tell you, when I took my, uh, I took a class in Hebrew scriptures at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago quite a few years ago, particularly on the book of Genesis, from a wonderful Lutheran biblical scholar who said the same thing in his class. He said that the people who wrote those stories knew that they were myths. This is what the biblical scholars said. They knew, they were not looking at it as history. They were looking at them as powerful statements about the tradition that tell us things that we need to know about life. So Spong's argument is that this is the way you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament. You have to study this stuff and figure out why a certain story was told a certain way, but it's not because of historical data. There isn't any historical data anyway. They're just these stories. So as you know, the mainstream of Judaism did not conclude that Jesus was the Messiah, even though these stories were constructed to try to convince Judaism that he was the Messiah through all these connections and connecting everything to something that had happened in the past in the history of Judaism. So that was an effort to convince Jewish people that he was the Messiah, but as, as we all know, and I was taught 4,000 times in Sunday school in a very serious voice, I was told that the Jews did not accept Jesus as their savior. And I had to be really worried about that, evidently. So what happened was, by about 150 of the common era, there were no more Jews in the Christian movement. The Jews weren't there anymore. They had not gone down that path. And so the people who were left over at that time, the Jesus movement people, were non-Jews. And what Spong says is, they didn't get the references because those references didn't mean anything to them. So if we're referring back to the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, or we're referring back to the Passover, we're referring back to 
you know, something Isaiah said about a river somewhere that finds its way into the Gospels, those people did not know those references and that did not mean anything to them. They just didn't know. It's like when I try to talk to my Chinese daughter, Wendy, about baseball. <laughs> she doesn't get it and she laughs at me, actually. That's the truth. She doesn't, if I say, you know, well, Ernie Banks would have caught that ball. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to her. She doesn't know who Ernie Banks, I mean, it's just not in her culture. And she's not that interested anyway. So it's a similar kind of situation that once the Jewish people were gone out of Christianity, the Gentiles, as they were called, did not understand those references. And so the Gentiles had to come up with a reason why those references were there. And they decided that the reason they were there is because they really happened. That's what they decided. That the only logical reason that the references were there is because they were literally true. Because they didn't have an alternative way of looking at them. And so Spong says that at that point, Christianity took a turn towards biblical literalism. And in his view, it was a wrong turn because that's not the way the stories were intended. But once the stories became interpreted as being literally true, then that springs a bunch of different things in motion. It becomes much more controlling, much more rigid, more dogmatic. And it also puts the leaders in the position of constantly defending things as true that actually aren't true. It puts you constantly in that mode. And he says it, create, it tends to create a much more controlling and dogmatic and often oppressive kind of religion. And it produces also a sense of exclusivity because there are passages that say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father, but by me will doggone it, that's literally got to be literally true because we don't have any other way of understanding it. And so you get a kind of exclusivity and you are in danger of being oppressive. Actually, all religions are in danger of being oppressive all the time, but I mean, this is how that can happen. And it did. And he says, he, taught, he has an entire one of his books on, uh, it's called The Sins of the Scripture. I'll bring it to the discussion. And the entire book is just about how the Bible can be misused in various ways to be oppressive. It was used to justify slavery. It was used to uh, justify anti-gay attitudes. It's used to justify subordination of women, all kinds of stuff that grows out of this sort of rigid, literalistic way of looking at the Bible. So here are the facts from this new perspective. The Bible is not a history book, and the stories are stories. They are meaningful stories, to be sure, but they're not factual. And this applies to the creation story right from the beginning, and we, we're still arguing, how can we still be arguing about that? How can we still be arguing about that? That makes no sense whatsoever that there's still 
some of our brothers and sisters and some of our family members maybe who are going to maintain that that's a literal truth. It's not. It's a story. It's a good story. It has power in it. It has message in it. But it's not, it's not a geological or cosmological scientific treatise. So, this applies the creation. The Exodus story, the entire Exodus story, which uh, is so important in Judaism, the, the preponderance of scholarship says that that probably didn't happen. Factually, it didn't happen. The Christmas story, the virgin birth, the miracles, the physical resurrection, all these major stories, these are stories that develop to convey meaning to people they're not pointless, they're not without value, they have value, but they're not valuable as history. That's not their value. And by the way, one of the side effects of this is if you claim that these stories are literally true, then if anybody who decides that they're not literally true is going to have a tendency to just completely disregard them from that point on. They're going to, their rea reaction may be, ah, well, throw that stuff away. Which again, from Spong's view, is a huge loss because you're actually losing the story, which is a powerful story. And then you add to these conclusions of Spong's biblical scholarship the findings of science post-Galileo and post-Darwin, and Spong reaches the conclusion that literalistic Christianity is not a sustainable religion in the long run. That's his conclusion. Literalistic Christianity is not a sustainable religion. And he's a bishop, by the way. <laughs> he's a bishop saying that this cannot last because it doesn't stand, number one, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, and number two, it doesn't meet human needs. So it's not a sustainable faith, in his opinion. It just can't withstand the growth of human knowledge. Now, Spong not only thinks that there's no literal virgin birth or miracles or physical resurrection, all that stuff, he also believes that the traditional idea of theism is not sustainable. The traditional idea of theism is not sustainable in the long run. So what is theism? We have to be careful when we throw these words around. So, Theism is the belief in a personal creator God who exists independently somewhere, often thought of as a sky God, as a supernatural being who can intervene in human events. When I grew up with my wonderful Baptist family, we looked at stuff during the day, you know, that happened as maybe something God did. You know, I bet you've done that in, in, in your families, and you might even do it yourself. I find myself doing that from time to time. So theism says there is a God somewhere that is a being, and that God can do stuff, has created the world, and can do stuff in the world anytime he or she wants, and it's usually a he. Spong says that traditional theism is no longer sustainable. It doesn't mean that it's not meaningful to many people. It is meaningful to me. But he's saying that the, the course of history is not favorable to sustaining that. that. That's what he's saying. He's not trying to threaten anyone's faith. He's just saying that won't hold up in the long run of history. 
So, what is left if you don't have theism of the Judeo-Christian tradition? Well, the reading I shared with you, Spong says the English language tries to trick us into thinking that if we're not theists, we must be atheists. So that's a limitation of our language, to think if we're not theists, well, we, then I must be an atheist. And I will say that all the people I've talked to over the years who say that they're atheists, which is fine with me, what I think they usually mean, what I think they usually mean is that they do not accept traditional theism. That's what I usually, now I could be wrong about some, I'm sure some people have a different idea, but I hear that I don't believe in that. I don't believe there's a God somewhere that you know, created the world in seven days and controls things and blah, 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 and Jesus was his son. I don't believe that. I must be an atheist because I don't believe theism. Well, Spong is, does not think that's the way to think about the problem. It's sort of like saying, well, I'm not a libertarian, so I guess my political affiliation is anti-libertarian. That's who I am. I'm anti-libertarian. So obviously there are lots of other choices, and he wants to lift up these other choices. That's, that's part of his mission. So what's left after you take away all the myths and the stuff that's not scientific and all that? And Spong says all the good stuff is left. All the good stuff is left once you take that out. This is his mission. The deepest meanings of the stories will become far more clear once you stop trying to say that they happened like that. Then you have a chance to talk about what the story's about. You're liberated at that point from this literalism. And he thinks it will become, the whole thing will become far more clear after we let go of that. What about God? Is God totally out of business? Maybe God's ready for retirement, you know? Boy, it's been a long universe, I'll tell you this. This universe has taken more work than a typical universe, and it hasn't been that fulfilling either, you know? I'm headed to Florida. <laughs> I'll go down there, I'll, I'll act Jewish, and no one will know that I'm there. Spong believes that long-term traditional theism is out of business, but it's a long-term, and it can still be meaningful to many people. But he thinks there are other ways to talk about God that are not traditional theism. And in fact, that's true. There are lots of other ways you might use that word that are not traditional theism, that are not about some guy in the sky who controls the universe. Spong says, God is not a noun that needs to be defined, but a verb that needs to be lived. We put that on our posters, as a matter of fact. In other words, God is not a thing. It's not an empirical entity. If you think God is a thing somewhere, then it's no wonder that you can't find it. And you can't demonstrate that existence, because that's going down the wrong path from his point of view. It's something that takes place inside of us, he says. It's a verb. It's something we can experience, something we can express. Last Saturday when he was here, Spong said, and I re really remember this clearly because I wanted to take note of it, he said, God is a name for the oneness of everything. 
God is a name for the oneness of everything. That's what he said. It sounds a lot like Emerson, who we talked about two weeks ago, who, who encounters what he calls divinity. That is something within us and all around us. It's not an angry father somewhere ready to punish us for our sins. It's the, it's the wholeness of life. Now, one could certainly talk about the wholeness of life without using the word God, too. That's fine. That works. But anyway, this is a one possible way one can talk about that. And he makes it sound, I think, to my ears, more like a mystical experience, which is something that really is a fact because people have those experiences all the time. Spong says any talk of afterlife must let go of the idea of reward and punishment. By equating heaven and hell with reward and punishment, the church has been able to control people with threats and promises. And boy, did I ever feel that when I was a kid. You know, you, if you do that, you're going to go to hell. If you do that, you're going to go to hell. That's really a way to control behavior, isn't it? Religions have been notoriously prone to try to control people, leading into many kinds of oppression that have been performed by religious bodies. Real oppression, which he goes into in real detail, by the way. So he says, this view of the afterlife must be given up as well, that there is no original sin, it is never mentioned in the book of Genesis. I challenge anyone to go home and read the book of Genesis and the creation story and tell me where it says original sin. Just come on and tell me where it says that. It's not in there. It's, not, it's made up by Augustine about 300 years later. And then that becomes part of the literal truth too. So there's no original sin. There's no damnation. There's no hell. There's no need for Jesus to die for our sins. The whole theory of Jesus being the Lamb of God, which is punished for our sins, and then we're washed in the blood. Spong really loves to talk about how Protestants get washed on the outside with the blood, and Catholics wash themselves on the inside with the blood. There's no blood to be washed in because there isn't any original sin to pay for. Spong says that if God sent his son to be crucified on earth, he is the ultimate child abuser. He's not a shy guy, by the way, Spong. He's not a shy person. So if Jesus then is not the Lamb of God, who sheds his blood for us, then who is Jesus? In Spong's view, Jesus is an example of a human being who lived the fullness of life. That's who Jesus is. He's an example of a human being who lived this dynamic oneness, this wholeness with all of life. That's who he is, and he is an example to us of what that looks like. Now, most of us, a lot, I won't know, many of us can't even think about Jesus anymore because the literalistic thing has just deadened our sensitivity and the hell thing has just, we don't even want to think about it because there's just been too much stuff. But anyway, if you want to think about it sometime, then that's what he says Jesus is. He is the, he is the one who lives the fullness of life, which can be called the fullness of God, when God is understood as the oneness of life, the ground of being, the source of love and compassion. 
And so from Spong's point of view, uh, what Jesus experienced can be experienced by anyone. And this view of Jesus, by the way, is very close to what uh, a Unitarian view, traditional Unitarian view. This whole thing, by the way, is very compatible with Unitarianism and Universalism theologically. There was an old saying in early Unitarianism that Christianity had become the religion about Jesus when it should be the religion of Jesus. It was an old Unitarian saying. I think Spong would resonate with that. The error of literalism is not just a factual mistake. It leads down the wrong path, according to Jack Spong. It makes God into an angry old man and creates a culture of guilt and shame. It divides people into the saved and the unsaved rather than emphasizing the universal love and compassion that the old stories are trying to teach. Spong says that the church must abandon the theology of guilt and punishment and embrace a theology of love and inclusion of all, if it is to have a future. All human beings are made in the image of God. In our tradition, we say that every person has worth and dignity. That phrase, worth and dignity, evolved out of the older phrase that everyone was made in the image of God, by the way. It's a little piece of our history. So everyone has that worth and dignity, and no group is excluded. from. No group is excluded from that dignity. Not Muslims, not Jews, not anybody. Everyone has that. And that is the future the healthy future for religion. You may take as much of this view with you as your mind and heart tells you is true, but let us be thankful that a courageous person of another faith shared with us his insights, and may we be inspired by his vision to let go of all our temptations towards division and strife and move more each day in the direction of love and compassion. And may our religion be used not to harm, but to heal. Amen.